You're listening to another episode of the Zag. Eric Desob here, excited to be joined by an NLC New York advisory member, exec board member Trip Yang is here. We're going to be talking about NLC convention, is Spark Talk, and all things Iowa. Thanks for listening to this episode. Let's get to it. All right, Trip, have you ever been to Iowa before? I have actually. I did my first political campaign there as a full time staffer. I was a field organizer in Boone County, Iowa, about 45 <laughs> minutes north of Des Moines. Uh, taught me a lot about the ins and outs of campaigns, about organizing communities, valuable experience. And uh, the best part about it is that, is that we won. You know, we won our county, we won the state of Iowa, and we won the country for President Obama. Yeah, I feel like a lot of people I talk to who have campaign experience talk about Iowa in reverential terms. So when you say like you learned a lot, what, what does it exactly yeah. mean? Is it the type of people you're interacting with? Is it just like the experiences of going door to door and it's so retail? Like what, what actually is being, being learned there? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I want to preface this by saying I feel like you can learn a lot about campaigning in any state, any city, any town. Iowa specifically has a lot of very high civic engagement. Um, the turnout rates there are very high. The civic engagements there are very high. Obviously, being the first caucus state in the presidential primary, a lot of folks there um, really pride themselves on being able to get to know presidential candidate by first name, uh, personal basis. So, you know, because of that, I find that a lot of folks in Iowa have a pretty high bullshit detector uh, when it comes to campaigns coming up for votes. So, you know, as a political operative, as an organizer, you really have to be authentic. You have to you know, know how to come across, um, you know, when you're trying to connect with these voters, you have to be very authentic about it. You have to be very sincere. You have to know what you're selling. Yeah, that makes sense. And so talking about campaigns and talking about NLC convention, and for those that don't know, there's a bunch of NLC alums who descend upon a city, and this year it happened to be Des Moines. And one of the key features of convention is something called Spark Talks, which is a little bit like a TED Talk, uh, kind of mini version of that. There's there's slides and someone is giving a, a, an impassioned presentation. And, and Tripp did one, which he'll explain here in a, in a second. But, you know, I wanted to ask, uh, you know, how, how nervous were you going into the experience knowing that there's 300, 400 people in the room? <laughs> I was slightly nervous, um, but I had a, a great coach uh, from NLC, uh, Michael Cooper from North Carolina, who had gone through this before in previous years and gave me a lot of really great pointers. Um, I also practiced with a number of people, and it just made me uh, a little bit more prepared and more calm. And, you know, uh, the best thing about it was that NLC uh, allowed us to do a couple run-throughs on stage mm -hmm. about an hour or two before the Spark Talk. And when you do that, like right before a spark talk and you nail the run through, you're prepared. Nice. So give folks a scoop. What were you talking about in your five minutes? Absolutely. Um, so my spark talk was about diversifying political campaigns. You know, I've been doing campaigns for a long time now. And, you know, it's very obvious that um, intentionally and unintentionally, a lot of campaigns at the leadership positions. So folks who make decisions. Um, like the campaign manager, the communications director, the media strategists, uh, you know, the male consultants, these folks are usually white men. And, uh, you know, I have nothing against that. You know, everyone deserves the opportunity to make a living. Um, but there needs to be a little bit more diversification, specifically with folks in progressive circles about having more women and having more people of color be in the positions where they can make the decisions and they can make, um, some of the higher dollar, you know, uh, you know, uh, 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 salaries. So that was 
my uh, my spark talk was really about if we diversify these political campaigns, um, you know, we will make them more effective. A lot of campaigns have shown that when you have more diverse leadership teams, you're able to connect more authentically to different communities. Um, that point about authentic to senior connections to voters is very, very important in political campaigns. And my spark talk also centered on the fact that if you make the working conditions on political campaigns more progressive, you will naturally have diversity. And what I mean by that is that, you know, campaign folks need to get paid more. Um, campaign workers often work 80 hours a week. They're underpaid. They have little to no benefits. Um, pay them more money. If possible, give them health care. Give severance pay, you know, at the end of the campaign, whether you want to lose to some of the more junior staffers. Uh, you know, have independent, uh, you know, reporting systems for workplace grievances and sexual harassment allegations. Work, make the workplace more progressive. And then, you know, it's people who are not just those who are privileged can now enter and sustain campaign careers. One thing I was going to ask, and I feel like this, this story popped a little bit right before convention around Bernie's campaign and his campaign wanting to unionize. If there was a unionized campaign, and I know there there are, there's been more of this cycle. What, what does that mean exactly? What does that actually look like? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so to my knowledge, uh, three of the presidential campaigns, Bernie, Elizabeth Warren, Julian Castro, have unionized. Uh, essentially... Um, the details may differ across each contract, of course, but uh, roughly unionization efforts really revolve around a higher minimum wage. Um, a lot of times, I'll give you an example. My first campaign mm -hmm. where I was a full-time staffer, I was, uh, I was in Iowa. I was making about $2,800 a month, and I was working about... 80 to 90 hours a week. Now, when you break that down on like a, you know, dollar per hour level, it is very, very low. It's well below the minimum wage, yeah. right? Sure. Um, yeah. So, you know, the unionization efforts in Bernie's campaign in particular is to have a $15 minimum wage, but I think, which I think there's, you know, a lot of value in that. But unionization also means having paid time off. It also can involve having, you know, mandated salary increases, uh, you know, if you've done a campaign for a certain amount of time. And it can also mean things like, um, you know, having, uh, you know, pay equity. So if you are a man or a woman and you do the same position with the same title, you have to pay those two individuals the same amount of money. Fortunately, not every campaign in the past has done that. And do you have a prediction longer term? Because I, I can't see the conservative movement making the same uh, overtures on this front to their own campaign staff. Does that make it more likely that they will uh, get to run campaigns cheaper? That makes it more likely to win or will they actually then lose super talented folks because uh, those talented folks would rather go work at a place where they know they're going to get paid and be treated fairly? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, there is uh, some gray area um, in terms of which campaigns can afford to do things like a minimum wage and pay health benefits, Right. Um, a local city council race in a small town that is running on maybe, a, you know, a $6,000 budget across two months, right? That campaign is really stretched for every dollar. So in my Spark Talk, and I've been vocal about this, that, you know, we can't have a one-size-fits-all solution. You know, this is something that we have to uh, do case by case. But the larger spirit is to make the workplace more progressive, treat people better, and if you treat people better, you know, whether that's a local campaign or a presidential campaign where you, on these large presidential campaigns, there's a lot of budget room 
to pay people more money and to provide healthcare benefits. When you do that, I really do think that you get more experienced political operatives. You get people who are savvier, who know this type of game. They're not learning on the fly. And ultimately, I think you end up with a better campaign because it's run by more experienced, more talented people. Nice. When we come back, we'll talk a little bit more about campaigns, including a specific one that Trip was involved with in New York. Thanks for listening to this episode. We'll be right back. Yeah, so talking about New York City, you ran a really interesting race for a lot of reasons. So give people maybe the short and sweet first of what the position was in New York and then what that role actually does, because it's kind of unique to your city. Absolutely. Uh, so I was the campaign manager uh, of a special election for the role of public advocate in New York City. So the public advocate represents over 8 million New Yorkers. It is one of three citywide elected positions in New York. Uh, This is in addition to the mayor of New York City and the comptroller, who's the chief fiscal officer. And what the comptroller does is a couple of things. uh, Sorry, what the public advocate does is a couple of things. It is second in line to the mayor. So if the mayor is no longer the mayor or the mayor takes an extended break, the the public advocate ascends to the mayor. Um, In addition to that, the public advocate is also there to serve as a watchdog, right, to various city agencies uh, within the city of New York. Um, if the public advocate requests that a city agency uh, needs to respond to something, a city agency has to respond to the public advocate. So it's very much an activist type of position, but it has some teeth with it that this charter of New York gave it. And it also has a budget this year of about $4 million. Um, so the staffers within uh, the public advocate's office, they take constituent concerns, you know, they address these constituent issues. They also do a lot of policy. They also do a lot of organizing over certain things, uh, you know, that are important that the public advocate and, and his team feel are important to New Yorkers. Quick background question. Did something terrible happen that this role was created? Because from the outside, it sounds fantastic that there would be this position in, in a city as large as New York and really in any city. Did something trigger this creation of the role? You know, I know that the public advocate once was the president of the city council. Uh, this was okay. decades ago, and the first public advocate became Mark Green. Um, I can't recall if something catastrophic happened all those decades ago that <laughs> created this position. Um, I do know it was in the context at that point the city charter was being reformed. So city government was completely reimagined. City council was changed. The role of these various borough presidents, there are five of them for each borough in New York City, was changed. Yeah. Um, and the New York City council president became the public advocate there was this new uh, position in New York City Council speaker um, that was created. So, um, so that's kind of the history of how the uh, the position was created. And then, you know, the the race for public advocate in some ways reminds me of the the primary right now for for president. There's <laughs> so many candidates, so many people running, and and a lot of people that even out here in LA that I had some connections to. There was someone who used to be on NLC LA's advisory board out here for a minute who was running, and just a, just a ton of folks. So in a race that's got so many people, what was your strategy going in to try to pop? Absolutely. Um, so this was the first ever uh, type of race for. Uh, public advocate, where it was a, a nonpartisan special election. What that means is Democrats, Republicans, uh, you know, independent voters, folks registered to another party, all of these folks can vote. So it wasn't quite a Democratic primary. Um, it was very unique. It was the first ever nonpartisan special uh, race in New York City that was citywide. This was really interesting because there was 17 candidates on the ballot. 
And um, this goes to my earlier point. If you think you can find 17 candidate managers who can run a citywide race in New York for one position at the same time, you know, that speaks to kind of, you know, the, the fact we need to make uh, campaign working conditions more progressive so that we can have, you know, 17 really good campaigns. You know, obviously on the ground, uh, there were a couple front runners. Uh, we were tagged as one of the top contenders along with two or three others. And um, strategy-wise uh, going in, look, we knew we this was a short race. It was about a window of about three to four months max to run a citywide race in New York, which is with over 8 million residents, that's a huge lift. So strategy-wise, we knew we had to focus on certain things. We knew we had to raise enough money to qualify for public matching funds. In New York City, if you raise uh, beyond a certain threshold, you get matched eight to one. So a New York City resident who contributes $100 matched eight to one, now that becomes $900, which really amplifies a lot of small dollar uh, you know, uh, uh, contributions and their political effect. Um, we knew that if we raised enough money and if we raised enough of it coming from small dollar New York City residents, we would have the most amount of money uh, to play with of any candidate. And that's exactly what happened. By the end of the campaign, we had about $1.4 million. We did not raise the most actual aggregate amount of money. There was another candidate who beat us in that. But because our strategy was more efficient, we had more small dollar donations. With public matching funds, we had the most amount of money. We also went over uh, every single type of political endorsement between elected officials, labor unions, grassroots groups. We had the most political endorsements of any candidate. And quite frankly, and you know, I, I think this is um, this is true of any campaign. You know, we had the best candidate and the best campaign team. You know, when you have a great candidate and a great campaign uh, campaign team, we had over thirty staffers and consultants and hundreds of volunteers. Beyond that, you know, usually that campaign is well positioned to win on election day. Yeah, and give folks uh, if they want to follow your candidates' uh, actual experience as a public advocate, tell folks who they should be following. Yeah, absolutely. So the public advocate of New York City is Jumani Williams. You can go on jumaniwilliams.com to follow him. Uh, you can also, from there, you can also uh, go onto the government website of, uh, you know, the, the public advocate city of New York to see what he's doing, uh, you know, legislatively and activism-wise. And, uh, you know, if there's a lot of cool stuff happening in New York City. I'm, uh, you know, lucky and fortunate to get to work with a great candidate like Jumani Williams. And then last thing, you know, with the, the buzz of, of, of convention probably still around a little bit and, and you'll be uh, on the exec board, I imagine, of the NLC New York chapter. Like, What do you want to see NLC do in the city or even do nationally in 2020? What kind of things are top of mind for you? Yeah, absolutely. I think there's a big opportunity with 2020 coming up for NLC. And I'm just speaking for myself here, to partner with different organizations um, that do things such as campaign trainings, for example, uh, for things that, um, you know, uh, encourage someone who may or may not want, want to run for office, but wants to develop a campaign skill set to work on a campaign or to run on the campaign one day. You know, that's a huge skill set and a huge area that needs to be explored. And I think there's a, there's a lot of opportunity with NLC's uh, name recognition and leverage to partner with these organizations, give them additional credibility. And, you know, NLC has always done a really good pipeline of uh, identifying and training future candidates. Let's identify and train future campaign managers and folks who run these campaigns. And let's make them more diverse.
<laughs> I like it. Well, listen, thanks for coming on. Really enjoyed your spark talk and really enjoyed hearing a little bit more about it here. And thanks everyone for listening to this episode of the Zag. You can f- catch all past episodes and there's a lot, almost 140 or so talking with other great progressives across the country. Find that in all the places you go to get your podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Apple podcasts, all the places until next time. We'll catch you soon.